0: From the Gulf Coast to the East Coast, this is the Writer Who Reads Podcast. Hi.
1: Welcome home, honey.
0: This is Kate Austin, the Writer Who Doesn't Read Enough.
1: And this is Trapper Kinchin, the Writer Who Doesn't Write Enough.
0: And this is episode 18 of the Writer Who Reads Podcast. We're back. We're back. This is technically season two. We had a long conversation about like making it officially season two, but it felt messy. So it's just episode 18.
1: That's exactly right. And to our friends... In other countries, it's Series 2, I think, is what they say. Oh,
0: you're right. Series 2, guys, after a three-year break. After a three-year break. So if you've heard other episodes and we just randomly popped up in your podcast feed and you're like, oh, my God, I completely forgot these people even existed. We Surprise. also forgot. <laughs> we, we also forgot we existed. We <laughs> forgot that we had a passion project. Yes. And yeah, but if you actually listen to our food episode that we just put out, you'll know that I moved to New York three years ago. And then our podcast kind of like fizzled.
1: Mm-hmm. It's kind of like we alluded to in the intro to the food episode. You and I've been in touch the whole time. Mm-hmm. Nothing has changed there. It's just that you have been geographically challenged. Yeah, <laughs> you've been totally removed from me spatially, and yeah, it just so happens that it's Thanksgiving. It is, and so you're home spending it with me.
0: I am. I'm kind of like all over the place right now. I've been in New Orleans for two months. Supposed to be heading back to New York. But we decided, you know, even though everything is up in the air and it's not going to be like it was when we first started this podcast Mm -hmm. in 2018, I think. Maybe late 2017. Maybe, yeah. Who knows? But we figured, you know, let's go ahead and revitalize it, even though we don't know if we're going to be together in the same state.
1: We're going to make it work.
0: Yes. And this episode is actually dedicated to a listener who made us, like, just start potentially wanting to restart the podcast because I don't know if anyone remembers but we used to always be like begging for reviews like of course five star reviews if you thought we deserved it but just like any feedback even if someone was like this is trash and be like oh my yeah. god someone listened to our podcast it's wonderful <laughs> but we had the sweetest five star review our only review on apple Podcasts from uh, an individual named kai with the short hair
1: so, thank you, Kai, with the short hair. Thank
0: you. I hope you're listening. This episode is dedicated to you. I hope you like it. I hope you like the content. But yeah, that was the first thing that we were like, wow, we reached someone. Maybe we should continue doing this because we <laughs> love it and someone else loved it. It
1: was very strange because when we were, de- first of all, I want to say <laughs> mm-hmm. there's zero pressure right now doing this. Uh-huh. And not to say there was pressure the first season in 2017 18, we were doing this. Mm-hmm. But sitting here, it is, this is, there's like nothing at stake. And before, I think we were both in such flux in our lives mm-hmm. that this was the only thing keeping us <laughs> literally pedaling along. And so, um, but ironically, in the midst of that, I, we never got a single review. Mm-hmm. I don't think we, I think we maybe thought we had two listeners.
0: We and, used to joke about having two listeners, but even yes. if I had that verified, I would have been so excited.
1: Yeah. And it's weird because, what, six months ago, maybe even more recent than that, mm-hmm. is when you said Trapper. I'm getting stats for the first time.
0: I'd never seen them. And
1: reviews for I didn't the first know time. how
0: to access them.
1: <laughs> so yeah, we found out, oh, gee whiz.
0: We have oh <laughs> like almost three thousand listeners worldwide, some in like Germany and just like
1: other countries. And I was yes. just like
0: What? Like people really were downloading these episodes and listening.
1: It's good we didn't know that then. We would have been nervous. Yeah, and so now that we know, hey, maybe somebody's gonna listen, People are listening to podcasts more often now. Yeah, that's true. It's the new radio. Yeah. Back in the thirties people would listen to like soap operas and yeah. teleplays. I'm like, this is this is the new thing. So if you guys wanna just and hopefully our voices sound pretty. I was thinking about that too.
0: <laughs> Trevor's always concerned about his voice and I well, don't understand
1: why. I want it to sound soothing and mellow right. and you know, just not ASMR, but more kind of robust and relaxing. Like a good which you would describe as like a good barrel whiskey you know smoky please
0: I'm gonna oh my gosh like talk about flashbacks to you comparing everything to different types of foods like we're already back to that I forgot <laughs> about do that, that. you did that in every episode and I was just like <laughs> yeah I guess I can see the equivalents okay. but yeah I see what you mean I don't think that's gonna happen actually I don't think this will be super soothing because I cackle a lot but <clears throat> I'll try not to <laughs> Um, but anyways we're we're like diving into the topic yes. before we've even like introduced the theme of this episode because we're being nostalgic and talking about when we first started the podcast, so we were talking about potentially coming back and what our first theme would be for our episode back in twenty twenty one and nostalgia came up, and I say nostalgia came up, but it was totally your idea, so I'm gonna let you explain where the idea came from
1: well we were talking about what topic to do for this new season and i thought man we reminisce so often when we get together Mm -hmm. i don't it doesn't matter how often we see each other how often we're on the phone it's always oh my gosh do you remember when Mm -hmm. and um i knew that when we planned to do this we started to pick this ball back up that it would be you and me saying, oh my gosh, do you remember? Do you remember? Do you remember?
0: Uh-huh.
1: <clears throat> and also, that's a very nostalgic time in our lives. I wouldn't say it was the most joyful or, you know, resplendent, but it certainly was a more innocent time, and I think it was definitely a more challenging time. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are the fun ones to look back on, to yeah. be we told. Well, so, that
0: means the podcast was just that much more important. Like you were saying, like, I personally was in a job that I did not like and you were figuring things out
1: bouncing hither and yon exactly mm-hmm. so it was
0: like the podcast really was that spot of just like nice. fun it, was like, it doesn't matter if the only person listening is my sister or your other friend's mom like, <laughs> it was fine so yeah it's, it's sweet to look back and yeah. reminisce on, on good times or even times that you didn't realize would be so big in your life
1: until later yes and when I brought the, up the fame or the idea of the episode I thought you know Human beings, I don't know if we're designed this way or if it's just a foible of ours, but we really suckle from nostalgia. Like that's the thing that carries us through mm-hmm. memory.
0: That's so true. You know, yeah.
1: we we just reflection and how time is the balm that mm-hmm. no matter how traumatic or awful a season of our lives, enough time usually passes that we can find some sugar in the in the vinegar, or we mm-hmm. can find something beautiful. In the tragedy, yeah. and so I thought nostalgia is perfect yeah. for this to resume momentum. That's
0: beautiful. That's so cute. I love it. I'm I'm glad we're doing this theme. I thought it was perfect as well. Um, and on this episode, Trapper, you're gonna go first. I am. You picked an author,
1: and I want to talk a little bit about how the author came to be picked because uh-huh. we chose nostalgia, and it's Thanksgiving season. Plus, mm-hmm. you know, end of the year. No matter what industry you're in, it's mm-hmm. just like chaos. Mm-hmm. I know our office has been chaotic, but we planned it and we planned it well in advance, and I just procrastinated. I focused on work, I focused on home, and da And we were in the 11th hour, mm-hmm. and I had a couple of ideas, and the more I thought about pursuing a specific author or a specific text, I thought, it's not gonna happen. These are not appropriate, or I don't wanna do them. Yeah. And it's so strange. I got my November copy of Today in Mississippi for members of Southwest Electric because I have <laughs> mm-hmm. a camp uh-huh. in Franklin County, Mississippi uh-huh. which is where we are sitting I must say,
0: we are saying this and I'm like yes it's beautiful I'm sitting on your sofa we're
1: sitting here now <laughs> and so I get this, the power company sends this once a month mm-hmm. and I always flip through because sometimes there's good recipes or little things mm-hmm. and the very last page was a picture of Eudora Welty's home in Jackson, Mississippi uh-huh. and I saw that and I thought I love Eudora Welty <laughs> and I thought, wait, Eudora Welty's an author? <laughs> 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 and, got it. And I was like, this is it. It was serendipitous uh-huh. because I got this in my hand. And it really, it's the thing that catapulted me to choose not only Eudora Welty, but also the text I've chosen to read today. Uh-huh. And it just, you know, sort of got me excited again. Yeah, about it made it. So that's how I chose my author. Mm-hmm. And now that I've said her name, perhaps I'll get into some details about her.
0: That sounds great. Let's get into it.
1: Also, all the facts and figures that I'll be spouting off here were garnered from the Eudora Welty Foundation website, Mm -hmm. and from the Encyclopedia Britannica coming to you with wisdom (laughs) since the year 1600, a long time ago. Beautiful.
0: Sounds very reputable.
1: Yes. I made sure not to go to any of those seedier.
0: Well, for the next episode, I'm going to be citing Wikipedia.
1: Oh, great. i am joking. We're both college graduates, despite... He has,
0: he has more
1: degrees than me. So. okay, go on. Eudora <laughs> Welty. Okay, Eudora Welty. I'm gonna start at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. She was born on April 13th, 1909, to Christian Webb Welty and Chestina Andrews Welty. Yes, Chestina. She had two brothers, and most of the sources I found attribute her literary acumen to her mother's love of language and reading. Um, she graduated from Jackson's Central High School in 1925. And she immediately matriculated to the Mississippi State College for Women in Columbus. Mm-hmm. Also, interestingly enough, 1925 is the same year that her family home was built, the home that is now a museum dedicated to her. Um, her and poor brothers. Her poor brothers. <laughs> yeah, that was her house. <laughs> yeah, you know where I lived here. Yes. Uh, in 1927 she transferred from the Mississippi State College for Women to the University of Wisconsin and that is where she received her bachelor's degree in 1929 she also attended graduate school at the Columbia University School of Business I'm not sure if she graduated Hmm. but she did attend and after college she worked at a radio station And she wrote society columns for the Memphis Commercial Appeal, which is a newspaper. And she also served as a junior publicity agent for the Works Progress Administration as a photographer for the Guide to Mississippi. And the Works Progress Administration was a part of FDR's New Deal program, kind of to get people working again in the Depression. And so she was taking pictures for the Guide to Mississippi, which was essentially a tourist pamphlet Mm -hmm. that would have been circulated around the country. I I think each state did that. So that would have been a very fun job, especially for a woman in the 1930s. I would say that's a big job. Well, taking pictures for the Mississippi Field Guide sparked a very interesting passion for her. Mm -hmm. Um, In addition to being a writer, she was also an accomplished and well-known photographer. And her prints were initially exhibited in New York in 1936 and 1937. Wow. Mm -hmm. Her first published work was a short story entitled Death of a Traveling Salesman, which was printed in 1936 and the editor of Manuscripts, which was a popular literary magazine at the time, called it one of the best stories I've ever read. After the publication of that first short story, she became routinely published in literary magazines like The Southern Review, Atlantic Monthly, and even The New Yorker. Her first book, which was entitled A Curtain of Green, was a collection of 17 short stories, and it was printed in 1941. At times in her stories, from what I understand, she translated into fiction memories of people in places she had earlier photographed. And of course she was photographing almost exclusively in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of her, her muse. Yeah. Critics at the time felt the book's three stories that focus on African Americans exemplified the same empathy that many felt was represented in her photographs of black subjects. Mm. And Toni Morrison later said of her that Eudora Welty wrote about black people, in a way that few white men have ever been able to write. It's not patronizing, it's not romanticizing, it's the way they should be written about.
0: Wow.
1: Which I think is a very high priorities coming from Ms. Morrison.
0: Yeah, well, the, the patronizing is something that you would think to hear in that scenario, yes. but you said s- sympathizing? Romanticizing. Or romanticizing. Mm-hmm. That's impactful, you know? Yeah. Okay, sorry, I'm not supposed to talk during this part. Okay, hey, forgot. I <laughs> forgot.
1: Open to. <laughs> comments and criticism <laughs> her biography well her first novel which was entitled Delta Wedding was published in 1946 and it is set in 1923 in the Mississippi Delta and for anyone who's not familiar with Mississippi the Delta region is in the northwest portion of the state of Mississippi between the Mississippi Rivers and I believe the Yazoo River and so it's not what you and I would think the Mississippi Delta would be which mm-hmm. is you know Plaquemine Parish anyway Uh, and it's very fertile and that's where many of the old plantations in Mississippi were located so a lot of wealth once circulated Mm -hmm. there Um, and that book actually was originally criticized when it was first printed as being a nostalgic portrait of the Old South Um, much in the way that kind of gone with the wind probably is people felt that it was a little bit saccharine Mm -hmm. Um, and so that was published in 1946 gone with the wind was published in 36 so Uh, I think it'd be pretty easy to be compared to something like that Mm -hmm. and kind of be seen as a little uh, derivative maybe, but that didn't stop her. She won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction in 1972 for her novel, The Optimist's Daughter. That book is set in the late 1960s and it focuses on the experience of grief and loss that she actually experienced in her personal life and uncharacteristic of many of her other works. The optimist daughter includes certain autobiographical elements and details. In addition to her Pulitzer Prize, during her lifetime, she was honored with the Presidential Medal of Freedom, which is incredible, and the National Book Award for Nonfiction for her autobiography. In her essay, Words into Fiction, she describes fiction as a personal act of vision. She suggests that an an artist and author must look squarely at the mysteries of the human experience without trying to resolve them. Hmm. Reynolds Price, who was a former professor of English literature at Duke University, said that she was not a mild, sonorous, affirmative kind of artist whom America loves to clasp to it, but instead she is a writer with a granite core in every tale, as complete and unassailable, an image of human relations as any in our art, tragic of necessity, but also comic. So she wasn't kind of a maudlin writer, she was very, you know, down to earth, mm-hmm. and therefore relatable. In 1971 a book of her photography which was entitled one time one place was published and three subsequent books of her photography were published in 1989 2000 and 2009 her autobiography which won the national book award was entitled one writer's beginnings and that was published in 1984 by the harvard university press Uh, and just kind of broadly speaking about her writing she was part of a literary movement which was called the southern renaissance and it was in full swing in the nineteen twenties and thirties, and rather corresponded with the Harlem Renaissance. Mm-hmm. And that literary movement kind of showed a revitalization and a rejuvenation of the arts in the American South, which had pretty well been smothered post Civil War. Anything that really was produced after that was kind of local color things, like Kate Chopin. Which I we was discussed. just
0: about to bring up, Kate Chopin. I was like, was she involved in that Renaissance? She
1: was well before that. Um, this would have been like the South coming into modern, a modern perspective Uh and uh, most of the time when one thinks of the Southern Renaissance one is going to think of really familiar names like Faulkner Mm -hmm. Tennessee Williams the Mm -hmm. playwright Flannery O'Connor and when we think of those three names we think of what people call the Southern Gothic which is sort of grotesque Mm -hmm. sort of subject matter writing style and that was definitely not Eudora Welty Eudora Welty had a different spin on things, but she was a part of the movement that brought to the national attention the idea of the South not just being a backwater, but also being a place where there were American experiences and perspectives.
0: Yeah, but you can see why, like, this is really off the heels of, of the Civil War, like when you think about it. We're
1: talking 60 years.
0: Yeah, so, like, you still have like, elders that experience that and probably are very resentful of the South, so her romanticizing the South in any way
1: And, like, Delta Wedding would have been Yeah, would have
0: yeah. been problematic.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and you know what's kind of you said. You know, it's on the heels of the Civil War. It's far enough. It's close enough to it that it's within like memory.
0: Yeah, from twenty twenty one. Because we're talking. But but, what?
1: But what do you think about it? So a generation is considered thirty years. Uh So we're talking about two generations removed from the nation's bloodiest war. Yeah, but it's far enough removed that. The rest of the country, which has kind of othered the South post-Civil War and made it into like a foreign mysterious place, Mm -hmm. are now open and interested to that exoticism. Mm -hmm. And then you have writers from that region producing texts. People are open to consuming that stuff. And so I think that's what sparked the Southern Renaissance. Whereas, you know, the Harlem Renaissance was sparked by like an outburst of just creativity and Mm -hmm. just like boom. And activism. Yes. Like, the
0: more that we have studied the Harlem Renaissance, yes. I'm like, yeah, it was a whole bunch of people. It was a like, movement. Like, oppressed and together and movement. creative.
1: Whereas this was more of, like, a clawing forth of just some individuals that happened to happen around the same time. Mm-hmm. And they did come together, and it did form, like, a quasi-movement, but not in an activism sort of way. Really, it just kind of, it's one of those things that forms into... Uh, if we're being kind of direct kind of a blip on the American timeline of literature yeah. um, and of course it spawned other things like you and me being writers from the south mm-hmm. um, it's the sort of thing that when the ball, the snowball starts rolling it collects more snow yep. but I had to bring that up that, yes. that she was a part of a small yet impactful movement that produced some pretty well known uh, artists and authors her work broadly speaking is focused on the regional manners of people inhabiting the small Mississippi town in general that resembles her own birthplace in the Delta country of Mississippi so she's basically uh, focusing on the little town that people would overlook in an area of the world in which she is wholly familiar and has studied since birth um, her works focus on human relationships specifically and they particularly reveal through her characters interactions and intimate social encounters so um, meaning those relationships are revealed Mm. through basically how their, her characters interact with one another. It's very nuanced in that way. Uh, among her themes are the subjectivity and ambiguity of people's perception of character and the presence of virtue hidden beneath an obscuring surface of convention, insensitivity, and social prejudice. So it's kind of like digging beneath the facade of what society expects of one and one may put on a sort of stiffness. But what is the humanity beneath that? Um, her outlook is considered hopeful. And love is viewed as a redeeming presence in the midst of isolation and indifference. Mm-hmm. So even though her characters are set in very rural, isolated places, there's, it's not a hopeless situation. Mm-hmm. The concept of love, whether it be familial yeah. or romantic, has the potential to lift one up. Which is very, very keen for you and me. I think our own um, perspectives mm-hmm. are similar. Her works combine humor and psychological acuity with a sharp ear for regional speech patterns. We talk a lot about phonetical writing. I think she utilized a great deal of that. Mm. Um, Welty characterized her own life in Jackson as being sheltered. And she felt that her early fiction reflected that. She grew up in an upper middle class um, family. And so I think she was raised very much to be a lady. And I think that that impacted her perspective in her youth. Okay. Um, she never married, nor did she ever have any children. And she died in Jackson on July 23rd, two thousand twenty. 2001 pardon me she was 92. wow and that's her story a life story in a nutshell a lot of facts interesting
0: yeah. okay interesting. I'm, i don't know why i'm surprised by that <laughs> little biography but i'm excited to hear her story do you have something else
1: oh i just i'm holding this little uh magazine clipping of her house and i just wanted anyone to know or was interested that the eudora welty house and garden is in jackson and it has tours uh, an interesting fact about the house. Well, first of all, it's a Tudor revival home built in 1925. But there's an entire floor-to-ceiling bookcase oh in God. the house full of books written by people she personally knew with inscriptions to her.
0: What a dream.
1: Including William Faulkner.
0: Including, like, inscriptions to her. Just like, so, this is where I keep all of these. am yeah. t- Like, I'm, I'm excited to hear this story because I was surprised at all the prizes and awards that she won. I desperately want to see, like, why. Why that is as an upper-middle-class white woman in the South, I'm like, okay, you went beyond what people saw and expected of you, and I want to know what that is and why. It deserved a Pulitzer Prize, you know?
1: I knew when I picked her Mm -hmm. that you had never heard of her. Mm -hmm. But I knew when I picked her, she's not quite as obscure as the authors we typically choose. Kind of like when I the first episode I think we did was Willa Cather, Mm -hmm. and that was another Pulitzer Prize winner. And I chose her because I think she is different than anybody we've ever Analyzed on mm-hmm. this podcast, but I think she'll be easily accessible to our listeners. Yeah. So, some of the authors we've chosen, I think our listeners may have to really find their text in order to get it and consume it. She's going to be a little more accessible. And I think she's going to be an easy intro for mm-hmm. some of our new listeners who yeah. can then backtrack and get into some Natalie Clifford Barney or Kala Shah mm-hmm. and some of our other folks. Let Eudora to be your gateway into. But also, yeah, she's
0: well known. She won a prize, so did Willa Cather. Mm-hmm. But like, the purpose of this podcast is we're not going to talk about Emily Dickinson. Exactly. We're not going to talk about F. Scott Fitzgerald. Absolutely. These people are well known, but not to like the everyday. This is common not person. common
1: knowledge. This is not going to be the sort of name that is a stand-in for a type of writing. Like when you say something like F. Scott Fitzgerald, mm-hmm. it's like jazz writing you know whatever you know it's like oh yeah
0: he did the jazz and so
1: I'm like you know she's not one of those yeah and um and also she was an extremely or maybe not extremely she was a very independent woman Mm. in a time in American history particularly in the American South when women simply in a general way were not very independent of choice
0: this is what I'm looking for. I want something radical about her because you know we do we do women, we do queer people, we do people of color, and I'm like, okay, she is a woman. She's white. She had money, so I want to like hear this. But I feel like we're doing our analysis already. So. Yeah, and uh, but look,
1: I love it because I know you, Caitlin, so well. You
0: call me Caitlin.
1: Then we'll cut that out. <laughs> I know you, Kate so well, uh-huh. and I know your personality. You you go into these with preconceived ideas and I love it because then we read the text you to it. and you are forced to parse through that mm-hmm. in the midst of the reading and then when we begin analyzing you're doing like a double working okay wow. and I love it because I, I know how you are and I would not change you for 10,000 pounds a year to quote We were watching Brian Friends Okay,
0: anyway, uh, I'm gonna pause this. Perfect. You're gonna go into the reading and then we're gonna yes. continue this analysis which we've already begun.
1: Y'all, hopefully she likes it, I'm nervous.
0: I'm gonna be honest, so yeah, we'll see. All right, you ready? Yes, ma'am.
1: Why I Live at the P.O. by Eudora Welty. I was getting along fine with Mama, Papa, Daddy, and Uncle Rondo until my sister Stella Rondo just separated from her husband and came back home again. Mr. Whittaker. Of course I went with Mr. Whittaker first when he first appeared here in China Grove taking Pose Yourself photographs and Stella Rondo broke us up. Told him I was one-sided. Bigger on one side than the other, which is a deliberate calculated falsehood. I am the same. Stella Rondo is exactly 12 months to the day younger than I am and for that reason she spoiled. She's always had anything in the world she wanted, and then she'd throw it away. Papa Daddy gave her this gorgeous out of pearl necklace when she was eight years old, and she threw it away playing baseball when she was nine with only two pearls. As soon as she got married and moved away from home, the first thing she did was separate from Mr. Whitaker. This photographer with the Popeyes she said she trusted, came home from one of these towns up in Illinois, and to our complete surprise brought this child of two. Mama said she liked to make her drop dead for a second. Here you had this marvelous blonde child, and never so much as wrote your mother a word about it, says Mama. I'm thoroughly ashamed of you, but of course she wasn't. Stella Rondo just calmly takes off this hat. I wish you could see it. She says, why Mama Shirley T's adopted, I can prove it. How, says Mama, but all I says was, hmm. There I was over the hot stove trying to stretch two chickens over five people and, completely un- and a completely unexpected child into the bargain without one moment's notice. What do you mean, hmm, says Stella Rondo. And Mama says, I heard that, sister. I said, oh, I didn't mean a thing. Only that whatever Shirley T. was, she was the spitting image of Papa Daddy if he cut, his, cut off his beard, which of course he'd never do in this world. Papa Daddy's Mama's Papa and Sulk's. Delirando got furious. She said, Sister, I don't need to tell you, you got a lot of nerve and always did have, and I'll thank you to make no future reference to my adopted child whatsoever. Very well, I said, very well, very well. Of course, I noticed that once she looked, she looks like Mr. Whitaker's side, too, that frown. She looks like a cross between Mr. Whitaker and Papa Daddy. Well, all I can say is she isn't. She looks exactly like Shirley Temple to me, says Mama. But Shirley T just ran away from her. So the first thing Stella Rondo did at the table was turn Papa Daddy against me. Papa Daddy, she says, he was trying to cut up his meat. Papa Daddy, I was taken completely by surprise. Papa Daddy is about a million years old and he's got this long, long beard. Papa Daddy, sister says she fails to understand why you don't cut off your beard. So Papa Daddy lays down his knife and fork. He's real rich. Mama says he is, he says he isn't. So he says, have I heard you correctly? You don't understand why I don't cut off my beard? Yes, I says. Papa, Daddy, of course I understand. I did not say any such of a thing. The idea, he says. Huzzy, I says, Papa, Daddy, you know I wouldn't any more want you to cut off your beard than the man in the moon. It was the farthest thing from my mind. Stella Rhonda sat there and made that up while she was eating breast of chicken. But he says, So the postmistress fails to understand why I don't cut off my beard? Which job I got you through my influence with the government? Bird's nest. Is that what you call it? Not that it isn't the next to the smallest PO in the entire state of Mississippi. I says, Oh, Papa, Daddy, I says, I don't say any such of a thing. I never dreamed it was a bird's nest. I have always been grateful through this... Though this is the next to smallest PO in the state of Mississippi, and I do not enjoy being referred to as a hussy by my own grandfather. But Stella Rondo says, Yes, you did say it too. Anybody in the world could have heard you that had ears. Stop right there, says Mama, looking at me. So I pulled my napkin straight back through the napkin ring and left the table. As soon as I was out of the room, Mama says, Call her back or she'll starve to death. But Papa Daddy says, this is the beard i started growing on the coast when I was 15 years old he would have gone on till nightfall if charlie T hadn't lost the milky way she ate in cairo so papa daddy says i am going out and lie in the hammock and you can all sit here and remember my words I'll never cut off my beard as long as I live even one inch and I don't appreciate it in any and I don't appreciate it in any you at all passed right by me in the hall and went straight out and got in the hammock it would be a holiday it wasn't 5 minutes before uncle rondo suddenly appeared in the hall in one of stella rondo's fresh colored kimonos all cut on the bias like something mr whitaker probably thought was gorgeous uncle rondo i says i don't know who that was where are you where are you going sister he says get out of my way i'm poisoned if you're poisoned stay away from papa daddy i says keep out of the hammock Papa Daddy will certainly beat you on the head if you come within 40 miles of him. He thinks I deliberately said he ought to cut off his beard after he got me that PO. And I've told him, and I've told him, and I've told him, and he acts like he just don't hear me. Papa Daddy must have gone stone deaf. He picked a fine day to do it then, says Uncle Rondo, and before you could say, Jack Robinson flew out in the yard. And he'd really done, he drunk another bottle of that prescription. He does it every single 4th of July, as sure as shooting, and and it's horribly expensive. Then he falls over in the hammock and snores, so he insists on zigzagging right on out to the hammock, looking like a half-wit. Papa Daddy woke up with this horrible yell, and right there without moving an inch, he tried to turn Uncle Rondo against me. I heard every word he said. he told Uncle Rondo I didn't learn to read till I was eight years old and he didn't see how in the world I ever got the mail put up at the PO much less read it at all and he said if Uncle Rondo could only fathom the links he had gone to to get me that job and he said on the other hand he thought Stella Rondo had a brilliant mind and deserved credit for getting out of town. All the time he was just lying there swinging as pretty as you please and looping out his beard. And poor Uncle Rondo was pleading with him to slow down the hammock. It was making him as dizzy as a witch to watch it. And that's what Papa Daddy likes about the hammock. So Uncle Rondo was so dizzy to get turned against me for the time being. He's Mama's only brother and is the, as and is a good case of one-track mind. Ask anybody, a certified pharmacist. Just then, I heard Stella Rondo raising the upstairs window. While she was married, she got this particular idea that it's cooler with the windows shut and locked. So she has to raise the window before she can make a soul hear her outdoors. So she raises the window and says, oh, you would have thought she was mortally wounded. Uncle Rondo and Papa Daddy didn't even look up, but kept right on with what they were doing, and I had to laugh. I flew up the stairs and threw the door open. I says, what in the wild world's the matter with you, Stella Rondo? You mortally wounded? No, she says. I am not mortally wounded, but I wish you would do me a favor of looking out that window there and telling me what you see. So I shade my eyes and I look out the window. I see the front yard, I says. Don't you see any human beings, she says. I see Uncle Rondo trying to run Papa Daddy out of the hammock, I says. Nothing more. Naturally, it's so suffocating hot in this house with all the windows shut and locked. Anybody who cares to stay in their right mind will have to go out and get in the hammock before the 4th of July is over. Don't you notice anything different about Uncle Rondo? asks Stella Rondo. Well, no, except he's got on some terrible looking flesh colored contraption. I wouldn't be found dead in, is all I can see, I says. Never mind. You wouldn't be found dead in it, because it happens to be part of my trousseau, and Mr. Whitaker took several dozen photographs of me in it, says Stella Rondo. What on earth could Uncle Rondo mean by wearing part of my trousseau out in the broad open daylight without saying so much as kiss my foot? Knowing I only got home this morning after my separation and hung my negligee up in the bathroom door, just as nervous as I could be, I'm sure I don't know. And what do you expect me to do about it, I says, jump out the window? No, I expect nothing of the kind. I simply declare that Uncle Rondo looks like a fool in it, that's all she says, and makes me sick to my stomach. Well, he looks as good as he can, I says, as good as anybody in reason could. I stood up for Uncle Rondo, please remember, and I said to Stella Rondo, I think I would do well not to criticize so freely if I were you and come home with a two-year-old child I had never said a word about and no explanation whatsoever about my separation. I asked you the instant I entered this house not to refer one more time to my adopted child, and you gave me your word of honor. You would not, was all Stella Rondo would say, and started pulling out every one of her eyebrows with some cheap, crest tweezers. So I merely slammed the door behind me and went down and made some green tomato pickle. Somebody had to do it, of course. Mama had turned both the Negroes loose, she always said no earthly power could hold one away on the 4th of July, so she wouldn't even try. It turned out that J-Pan fell in the lake and came within a very narrow limit of drowning. So Mama trots in, lifts up the lid, and says, Hm not very good for your Uncle Rondo in his precarious condition, I must say, or poor little adopted Shirley T. Shame on you. That made me tired. I says, well. Stella Rondo had better take, thank her lucky stars it was her instead of me came trotting in with that very peculiar looking child. Now if it had been me that trotted in from Illinois and brought a peculiar looking child of two, I shuddered to think the reception out of God, much less control the diet of the entire family. But you remember, sister, that you were never married to Mr. Whittaker in the first place and didn't go up to Illinois to live, says Mama, shaking a spoon in my face. If you had, I would have just been as overjoyed to see you as your and your little adopted girl as I was to see Stella Rondo when you wound up with your separation and come back on home. You would not, I says. Don't contradict me. I would says, Mamma. But I said she wouldn't convince me, though she talked till she was blue in the face. Then I said, besides, you know as well as I do that that child is not adopted. She most certainly is adopted, says Mama, stiff as a poker. I says, why, Mamma, Stella Rondo had her just as sure as anything in this world, and just too stuck up to admit it. Why, sister, said Mama, here I thought you were going to be. Here I thought we were going to have a pleasant Fourth of July and you start right out not believing a word your own baby sister tells you. Just like cousin Annie Flo went to her grave denying the facts of life, I reminded Mama. I told you if you ever mentioned Annie Flo's name I'd slap your face, said Mama, and she slaps my face. All right, you wait and see, I says. I, says Mama, I prefer to take my children's word for anything when it's humanly possible. You ought to see, Mama, she weighs 200 pounds and has real tiny feet. Just then, something perfectly horrible occurred to me. Mama, I says, can that child talk? I simply had to whisper. Mama, I wonder if that child can be, you know, in any way. Do you realize, I says, that she hasn't spoken one single solitary word to a human being up to this minute? This is the way she looks, I says, and I looked like this. Well, Mama and I just stood there and stared at each other. Okay. Okay, quick caveat. Mm Okay. So, I did not rehearse that. And, um, it's a very fast-paced story. Didn't remember it being that fast-paced.
0: hmm
1: And so, anyway... You didn't read the whole thing? I read about half. Okay. And, um, you don't know why she lives at the PO. I didn't realize...
0: Listen... <clears throat> Like, I'm just... I'm trying to... It took me a while in the beginning to sort out who was who. There were a lot him. of characters. Mm-hmm. And then I don't... I still don't fully grasp what the PO was. Because there mm-hmm. was, like, a few... There were, like, a few references to, like, mail. Mm-hmm. So are we talking about, like, a PO box? Why she lives at the PO? When, like she
1: lives at the post office. Okay. She's abbreviated it to PO.
0: And you know what's just so revolutionary for me right now <laughs> is that I'm just realizing that a P.O. box means a post office box. For the first time wow. in my... You've
1: been sending me mail to my P.O. box for... I've been sending you... A and a I decade. was like,
0: don't know what a P.O. box is. Like, it's a box at the post office, but I didn't think that P.O. <laughs> meant post office. So I'm just going to sit with that for a moment. Okay. And you can just...
1: Alright, well, I will tell you the <laughs> excerpt of the story I just read. So the story, Why I Live at the P.O. was part of... A curtain of green, which was her first full collection of short stories, and it was published in 1941. So it's very old, and um, I think that the writing style, the language, the subject matter, reflects that. Mm-hmm. Um, and before we start into the analysis, um, I've read this short story many times, and not just for this podcast. Mm-hmm. I think the first time I read it, I was 17 years old, and. I don't read this as being the story that takes place in 1941. I feel like it's older, like 1920s, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: you know. um, And if one reads the whole thing, you definitely get that vibe. Yeah. Um, And before we analyze, I just want to kind of do a quick synopsis of the rest of the story. So it's called Why I Live at the P.O. So our narrator's sister... uh, as you can see, feels very antagonized by her family. And she is the postmistress in the little town of China Grove. So she finally says, that's it, I'm I'm leaving the house. And she goes and she moves into the post office. (laughs) And as a consequence thereof... Um, people in town have to decide if they're going to be on Papa, Daddy, Mama, and Stella Rondo's side or if they're going to be on Sister's side. <laughs> and so she says, people have quit buying stamps and my family has no way of getting mail because they will not come to the post office, which means they have been totally disconnected from the world. Mm-hmm. And the last, maybe I'll read the last line of the story. Yeah. Um, as part of the analysis, she says... And if Stella Rondo should come to me this minute on bended knees and attempt to explain the incidents of her life with Mr. Whitaker, I'd simply put my fingers in both ears and refuse to listen. Okay. And that's how it ends.
0: Oh my gosh. I am just like blown away because I think this is the first author or story that we've done where it's just like pure comedy. Like I don't ever remember (laughs) like trying not to laugh so that I wouldn't mess up the audio of the podcast while you were reading. Like that was it's absurd it's It's absolutely absurd absurd. everyone is just so emotionally charged i think when you were talking about her writing in in the biography section of this you were talking about how like of course there's a little bit of comedy but she really focuses on relationships and i in my head i'm just like i really can respect authors who just literally write about everyday people like you've read my stuff i like write about weird dystopian things Mm -hmm. where the world ends and i'm like yeah that's interesting but to be able to take basic human relationships and family dramas which we both have everyone mm-hmm. has and make it interesting to people who also have their own family dramas yep. that they're probably sick of thinking about like that's a real skill absolutely and I really really enjoyed that story of this like upper class white Mississippian family that I can't relate to but well, <laughs> find no. just hilarious and absurd
1: well I'm glad you enjoyed it I, I think it's a very funny story uh, I think it's funny and I think that okay let me put it this way I don't think that the the narrator would think it's funny at all but she is so hysterical
0: that that makes it
1: funny Um, and I want to just to kind of kick this off the first time I ever read this was the first time in my life it ever dawned on me that a first person narrator is not reliable I've talked about this on the podcast Mm -hmm. I've talked to you about it privately yes and I was, I remember thinking, my God, because this character is so blatantly partisan, taking her own side. Yeah. yeah. We don't know what happened. We're not hearing from Stella Rondo. We're not hearing from Papa Daddy. We're not hearing from Mama. Are we are hearing from drunk Uncle Rondo. <laughs> and so, um, if you take this at face value, she's a victim. They have run her off and they have treated her poorly but but it's but she's so clearly biased that's part of the humor mm-hmm. she's characterizing these other people through her eyes mm-hmm. so we're not knowing if anything here is accurate um and so that that's what's so important to me about this particular text mm-hmm. it was the thing that clicked in my mind at 17 the importance of tense yeah for a writer and as a reader the importance of understanding tense in processing and enjoying a text yeah. or a piece of work.
0: So. Yeah. So yeah, you have the, the first person point of view, and then you have the present tense, mm-hmm. which I thought was really interesting, because it's like, <laughs> I've tried to, to do that before in my own write, writing, and it just seemed too present, <laughs> too like, everything's happening, but I think that lends to the fast pace of the story. <clears throat> it's like, this is happening. You you just picture her flying through the house, like she's upstairs with her sister, <laughs> bringing up the kid and the sister's like, Don't you dare talk about my two year old and not the daughter <laughs> then she's downstairs complaining to her mama, then they're talking about the daddy's papa whatever his name is, beard. It's like it it really helps keep with the pace of the story, like as I think she intended, which
1: And what's fascinating too, you bring that up and when I was reading through little facts about her, mm-hmm. they talk about how she was a real master at essentially colloquialism and picking up on the specifics of an area. And so you're saying that you heard this as present tense and mm-hmm. she's saying, she's reading this reflectively. However, that's the author because the narrator only ever says, says. That's what I want to say because I was, only ever when says I was
0: listening, it. I was sitting there with my eyes I closed, says, she says, I says, says, she says, and then, but then it would be like. So and so said. Mm-hmm. So there's past tense in there Is too. there? Okay. Yeah. But
1: those says are what catches the ear. But the says, yeah. yeah.
0: But I guess that is the you know colloquialism, that language in there where it's just like maybe.
1: But it's a it's a device because you have first person. Mm-hmm. The narrator is reflecting on something that has already happened. <laughs> but that the says in particular, because you're right. I see this. It Stella Rondo too- got furious. She said. So it's crazy because the author is keeping you. One hundred percent engaged, and it lends to the speed. I don't mm-hmm. know if you said that mm-hmm. just I, yeah. now, but um, it makes you rush through, and it also gives you a sense of urgency,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and like you said, a presentness in this ca- fiasco, this catastrophe. Yeah,
0: and it feels personal. It does. Like I can, I can imagine myself with my little. <laughs> Country Mississippi friend being very exasperated by something that happened and be, and then like sitting at a table with me and saying and then I says to her you know mm-hmm. like you just you feel yeah. like it's organically gonna happen it's gonna come up so I see how it's reflective but it also feels very present yeah. so what's our tense here like where are
1: we uh, that's a, I think that maybe that confusion and that question is important. Of course, we don't ever talk about writer's intent because Eudora Welty is not here, but I think that it lends to a, it lends a sense of confusion. There's already chaos happening, and it's easy to forget that. I mean, my God, she's so casual, as so says her mother slaps her. And then she immediately transitions into, has that child spoken? You know, and then basically begins to say horrible things about this, basically alludes to the child having a disability. And you know, it's like, she looks like this. And then the mama is just like, I'm
0: laughing my ass off right now because like that was the part where I almost cracked. I almost like laughed out loud because mama said that she would slap me if I ever did blah blah. And then she slapped me. She slapped me. I was like, I'm unravelled. I'm undone. Like this is (laughs) hilarious. And you're right. She just completely switched over to. Like, oh my god, that child has a disability. And it's just like, wait, hold on, you didn't process that you've just been struck. Mm -hmm. And that's just like also building the characters. It's like, this is a family that slaps each other in the face and they move on. And
1: also it lends, again, to this idea of how reliable, first of all, how reliable is the narrator and how far removed is she from this actual event? How long has she been living at the PO? Mm -hmm. Because I don't think it's normal for anybody to be struck in the face, as a grown woman, Uh by your 200-pound mother, and then immediately (laughs) transition into something, it's like she's only remembering highlights, and highlights from her perspective uniquely, in that Uncle Rondo comes down in the kimono, and then Mama slaps her, things that are kind of like, the things that one remembers, so like she's not, she doesn't tell us what they were, Mm -hmm. she mentioned she was cooking chicken, but she Mm -hmm. doesn't discuss what was being served or who was serving the food we know it's the 4th of July but what kind of celebrations are happening she's only focused on details that would stand out in her mind so for, I mean I've, it's been a while since I've read through this whole thing but I mean I mean for all we know it's Christmas and she's still at the PO
0: yeah wait I can't believe I even said like this is the present just because of the says because the title is literally like why I live at the PO of course this is gonna be like reflective and you're Telling me why on the test. Mm-hmm. He's like I'm here now but let me tell you what happened yeah. That's so, like, the balance between the past and present in this is so crazy.
1: There is, I'm trying to, there was something about this when I first read it as a kid that really resonated, resonated in me. And and when I talked about nostalgia, or when we bring up the theme of nostalgia, why I chose this, you know, Eudora Welty's kind of nostalgic to me in that the themes and her writing style are very home-like for me, homey mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. me. Um, but beyond that... This character, even while kind of looking back on something that is wild and helter skelter and going upstairs and downstairs and being slapped and cooking pickles and doing this and it's all this stuff, she's looking back. And the opening line of the whole story is I was getting along fine with mama, papa, daddy, and Uncle Rondo mm-hmm. until my sister, Stella Ronda, just separated from her husband. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you know, she's she's thinking everything was beautiful and rosy. And then Stella Rondo came on. So, and, and with nostalgia, of course, that has such a positive connotation. And we think of nostalgia as being this wonderful thing where we look back through the rosiness and the, the gorgeous tint and haze of time. But nostalgia is really reflection. Mm-hmm. And I love that this particular story is reflecting and it's remembering a specific moment in time for this character that has influenced the trajectory of her life. Mm-hmm. I now live at the post office.
0: I love, actually, because I completely forgot that we even had a theme here, but I love that you picked nostalgia, but you didn't go for some like flowery romanticization of a pleasant time. Mm-hmm. It was like, I'm reflecting on this period.
1: This was my experience with it. Part of it was
0: good, part
1: of it was bad. And, you know, again, this was just the first half of the story, but she really wants you to believe her. She does not Mm -hmm. want to come across as a liar. Mm -hmm. She does not want to come across as hysteric. She's almost setting herself up to be like, my God, am I not the grounded, rational one here? Mm -hmm. And am I not just getting dirt kicked in my face consistently? So she's setting herself up to the best of her ability to be a reliable narrator. The trouble is... She is not reliable. Therefore, it's like character building through narration. So you get the idea that she is not adept enough, meaning she's not a good liar. And she's also maybe not hyper-intelligent because what she's doing is she's trying so hard to tell the story and be sincere and earnest and, oh my gosh, pious.
0: It's like what you do when you want someone on your side. Exactly. But she's hilarious. And I think that, like, keep saying the word absurd, but that absurdity, like, the clear, the transparency of... What's really probably happening yes. behind the scenes through her account of yes. it is what is so funny because mm-hmm. it's like, okay, I'm sorry, I'm still on the slap. I can't stop laughing about the slap. But it's like you told us some of the facts, but it, it just seems a little bit unbelievable. And that's what I think is okay with this. I mean, I love a first person narrator. <laughs> you know yes. I mean. that's yes. That's literally all I do. But this feels like it's very true because it's so unbelievable.
1: I was going to say this to bring up the first person this to me is exemplifies and reinforces the fact that the first person requires finesse mm-hmm. meaning for those of us who write whether it's creatively or those who keep diaries or whatever when you're young no matter who you are your natural inclination is to write in the first person because that is what when you're young, that is how you express yourself.
0: That's how you think I. your thoughts, yeah.
1: Okay. And then, when you get older, you're mostly consuming the third person. That's what most everything is written. Mm-hmm. And so, there's a shift. Some people, and we know a of people, mm-hmm. amateur writers and even professional writers, who their first person remains um, adolescent. It remains stunted. Mm-hmm. Really good first person comes with like anything, practice, experience, and it has to be germane to what you're writing. Mm-hmm. And so, this to me is good first person because the woman who is writing it is a great wordsmith and mm-hmm. she's a craftsman. Yeah. And um, and I think that I mean, obviously, you need to have some practice and skill and ability, no matter what tense in which you're writing, mm-hmm. because if you think about it. My idea is the third person is probably the easiest in which to write. Really? I do, because you, are, you can write about anything anytime anywhere, and you're the fly on the wall. Mm-hmm. There's no, ha- no certain explication can be cut out. Yeah, you know And then I think the first person is maybe the second most difficult, and it requires even more finesse. and naturally, the second person is the rarest and mm-hmm. most. Difficult to really master Mm -hmm. in a way that is, you know, really great. Yeah. Um, So when we've talked in the past about first person, I think most of the time uh, I've seemed a little prejudiced against it because I've read so much garbage (laughs) that is written in first person. Yeah, there's a lot of Um, bad
0: stuff written in first person, but I I personally find third person impossible. I think it takes. it takes a lot of focus you know you you have so much freedom that you have to kind of sit there and be like okay where are we going next what character are we focusing on what multiple characters are we Mm -hmm. focusing on whereas the first person i'm like from start to finish i'm with the same person this is a very intimate perspective and i almost like that you don't get the other perspectives it's like you're limited to this do you trust this narrator or not and i like to write narrators that you do trust and you're just like, I'm going to identify with you, and this is us in it together.
1: So, listeners, what you're hearing is two different styles, <laughs> meaning, like, you're inclined to the first person, and you've just given your reasons. And, mm-hmm. of course, I, obviously, am inclined to the third.
0: Yeah. And I do want to say, if we're talking about us, we, I don't think we've really talked about our writing style or, or anything, like, in depth. This is the most we've gone but the thing I love about this story is that it reminds me of your writing so much. Does it really? The absurdity, not of course the, the <laughs> point of view, but like the southernness of it. Okay. And like I don't I don't know. It's like it's it's funny. Like I haven't I don't read many southern authors right. or just like stories that take place in the South and like especially not ones that also factor in comedy and this is has both of those aspects and you have written some of the funniest stuff I know I'm thinking of like maybe two different stories
1: yeah I wrote one story that I entitled Walking for Fitness Walking for Fitness and and that was was funny
0: there was one of the sisters of the Confederacy or something. Oh,
1: that was for one of our college classes. There was like Ooh, a, a I was Mie. mocking the yeah.
0: But and that one was like less like the walking for fitness was less like hilarious. intended to be hilarious and it was hilarious. And I one one thing I'll say is writing a comedy is hard. Yeah. And you make it seem so effortless. I really so appreciate you're appreciate that. Really great at that. But the other one wasn't wasn't intended to be like On the nose with the comedy. That was
1: more satirical. Yes, I remember that one too. Yeah, I think I called that the Nuthouse or something.
0: And it was very dramatic, but like you get to this point that now we're talking about your writing, but we get to this point in that story where it's like, oh, this feels so dramatic, but it's also at the same time, it's like, but it's not. It's mundane. Yeah, it's mundane, and like it's hilarious that that I feel this drama about something so mundane. So like I feel I feel that same sense in Eudora Welty's story because I'm just
1: like. Well, I appreciate you comparing oh, me to your daughter, Welty. Oh. And, and really, I think with all writing, but when when we pick up something as being humorous, whether it's intentional or not, it's tone. And tone, whether you're writing or whether you're doing a visual medium to express your artistic point of view, tone is the crux, period. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Okay, everything else is filigree. And, and, and tone is what informs the viewer or the reader's emotions, their feelings about a piece, if something speaks to them, if it connects with them. And I'm not speaking for myself at all, meaning in terms of my writing, I'm talking about this Eudora Welty piece, and really anything we've ever read. Tone is unique to the individual artist. Mm-hmm. And two, it is probably the most essential thing somebody who is creating has to master that is your voice Mm -hmm. how you shape tone the fact that we're reading this and the tone off the cuff is fast lively funny Mm
0: -hmm.
1: um and that we're not reading it as like this is depressing this is so chaotic. This
0: could be a drama. Yes. Like, this could not be funny at all. Yes. Like, all the circumstances could be like, oh, you have this overdramatic yes. sister who who's, like, anal and wants everything her way. Mm-hmm. And then the father takes the beard yes. thing too seriously, and now he's in a mood. But no, you're right. It's the tone. It's the pacing. And you just saying, like, tone is so important to get right makes me just, like, want to vomit. Because sometimes I've been like, oh, the tone of my writing, something's off. And it's not something that you can fix easily. I feel like tone is something that's innate in your writing, and it's it's almost impossible to pinpoint. Sometimes it's like what what builds your tone.
1: It is the elusive element. It's almost like you know, you hit the the, the tuning fork and it goes ding, and you hit lower, and it's a different one. And it's like literally finding that millimeter mm-hmm. on the on your the spectrum of your creativity, because the because. As a writer, not everything is going to be funny. Not everything is going to be somber. Not everything is going to be dramatic. It's like your voice has to adapt each time. And that's... I mean, we had the marvelous Jennifer Davis as one of our instructors in college. Mm-hmm. And she stressed that, like anything else, if you're a writer, uh, you have to exercise that muscle. Practice does make perfect. Perfect being a relative term. Mm-hmm. we talking about art. But she, she basically said, really excellent writers oftentimes are not the people that say, I live to write. I wake up every day and I want to write. Mm-hmm. You have to make yourself do it. And we talk about, you know, we don't read enough. I talk about, I don't write enough. And it's the honing of the blade, the honing of one's voice, and the ability to basically hit the right tone for the right mood for the right text Mm -hmm. that's really integral it's more than just the words it's more than just the outline it's more than A to B crescendo end
0: yeah there's definitely a balance in it and then like if we're talking about comedy specifically also like the delivery yes I'm going to go back to the slap moment because it's my favorite thing I'll think about it forever it's just like if she had delivered that scene differently it could have been a million different things But but, literally, I haven't seen it on paper, and I think seeing things on paper really helps when you're reading and like understanding an author's writing style. But I feel like it was two very short sentences. It was, or it was like one long one and then a very short one after, and the the structure of that sentence made it hilarious. And then she slapped me.
1: I'm gonna read this again.
0: Yes, please.
1: I told you if you ever mention Annie Flo's name, I slap your face. Says Mama, comma and slaps my face
0: and slaps my face it's so funny and I think I also am tickled by it because I went through this like phase in my life I have an older brother who's three years older than me and I would say he would do something and I'd be like I will slap you in the face and the funny thing about that was that I always kept my word if I said I was gonna slap you in the face I'd slap you in the face if I said I was gonna punch you in the face I'd punch you in the face it was never like I'm gonna knock you out but it was just like Kate sticks to her word yes and it was just so funny because he'd do something, and I'd say, "I'm gonna slap you on the face," and everyone in the room would be like, "Oh, oh, it's about to happen." Yeah. Like there's no going back now, and he'd be like, "No, no, please, no!" <laughs> and I'd slap him. So like this is reminiscent of that okay. for me, but also just like the structure of that sentence is sure. just like it's.
1: Hilarious. Well, and you know, talking about nostalgia, you just reminisce about your relationship. <gasps> You're with right. Your
0: I, I connect to the the human relationships in this problematic Look,
1: story. That's something great to bring up here when we're talking about this. I mean, mm-hmm. I spoke a little about how a little a bit about how this invoked a feeling of nostalgia in me, mm-hmm. and how Eudora Welty does that. But what's great about the topic of nostalgia is words have the ability to take us back. It doesn't even have to be something that you grew up reading or something that takes you back to a specific time in your life. You can pick up a brand new book and something about it, a structure of a sentence, a character's reaction, uh, the way the author frames uh, something, it can take you back. That's the power of words. Mm -hmm. And also, I think when you take this narrator as unreliable, she is reflecting how much time has passed, it makes one think, in twenty years, she's gonna look at this experience totally differently. mm-hmm Okay, I don't know if she's going to have changed the story. Is she gonna look back with bitterness, or is this something she's gonna say, "My gosh, remember when I lived at the PO"?
0: Mm-hmm. And how dramatic I was, exactly. and how like me and my family didn't talk for five months. Mm-hmm. That's so crazy. You know, it's that's that's how nostalgia changes. Exactly. Like as you grow and your perspective changes. So does I don't know and your perception of things.
1: She's also kind of when you said time changes your perspective. Just now, mm-hmm. I'm thinking she's she's thinking about Mister Whitaker still with very much sweetness, and kind of like Stella Rondo stealing mm-hmm. from her. Mm-hmm. And even though Stella Rondo has left Mister Whitaker, and we don't know why Stella Rondo has left Mister Whitaker, whether Stella Rondo is silly or Mister Whitaker is nuts, mm-hmm. but sister is. Still angry that Stella Rondo sparked her beau and married him and now has left him. And then poor sister, we don't know what she looks like. She might also, you know, be a string mean or crazy or, you know, (laughs) not right or have a beard. I don't know. But um, she's single. And you get that feeling of, if I had gotten Mr. Whitaker, this whole charade, this shenanigan, would not have happened.
0: And then the absurdity and the (laughs) <laughs> I, I said absurd like 20 times I'm sorry I'm gonna like go to a thesaurus and then look up absurd right now just to get the some ludicrousness the ludicrousness of the, the two-year-old you know like uh-huh. there's so many questions like why is she here Your Where, what happened why are you separated what about what about this two-year-old daughter don't you dare mention my two-year-old daughter you know my adopted daughter it's just it's all so hilarious and it's because of, once again, the pace of the story and how everything's happening at once.
1: Uh, Sisters does a really good job. I don't know if it's because of her reflecting on this and being able to change things. She's really great. She's really passive-aggressive, and she's great at it. Mm-hmm. So when you bring up the two-year-old, at first you're like, well, what's that an issue? And you get that she's impugning Stella Rondo's character as a lady because mm. Stella Rondo, if this child is hers... This child would have been conceived before Mister Whitaker and she married. Mm. Uh, it would have been born afterward. Uh-huh. But it's saying, "Oh, Stella Rondo married Mister Whitaker because Stella Rondo needed to." I Maybe mean, that's why they separated. Mm-hmm. And so, it's, but like as a reader, we're kind of like, "Okay, well, what's it matter if the kid's belongs to her? If it looks like Papa, Daddy, and Mister Whitaker, or if it's adopted?" Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, "Oh, because Stella Rondo is the hussy, and I've been called a hussy, and I'm not." Uh huh. And so she's really good at that, and also the passive aggressive stuff about okay, mama weighs 200 pounds and has tiny feet, you know, that paints a specific <laughs> image, like maybe, you know, and then Uncle Rondo being in the kimono, like, okay, that's kind of weird. Yeah, He's a pharmacist who's addicted to something or is drunk <laughs> or takes whatever, but he's also wearing the kimono, and so we're kind of like, what's that? Um, Papa Daddy being the patriarch of the family but being sensitive about something like a beard, she's, she's taking away the lady-like... She, she's stripping away the ladylike facade of the sister. Mm-hmm. The sort of delicate femininity of the mother. The archetypes. Okay, so you take the archetypes and you strip them bare. Mm-hmm. The masculinity of the uncle and then the solid stability of the grandpa. Everybody's just kind of like laid bare and what's left is sister being the sane, solid... Uh, the the seawall that takes the waves but then finally one crash and it gives up. she's like I've had all I can take.
0: For whatever reason I feel like this is a prominent family and that they have money so part of me thinks that like you're saying like you know she's kind of reversing all these archetypes and just like I feel like we're getting a peek into this household of this great family that other people don't see. I agree. You know like on the outside they're like very tidy, prim and proper the (laughs) uncle isn't wearing kimono you know like it's Mm -hmm. just like we're getting a peek into the dysfunction where they present something completely different on the
1: outside. That goes back to the little introduction I did on Dara Welty, where they say she's so good about painting an image of the specific life in this specific area. Mm-hmm. So yes, I think this is a prominent family in a itty bitty town because they have the second smallest post office in Mississippi.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Number two, we know they're prominent because Papa Daddy got her that job mm-hmm. as postmistress. we're supposed part of what sister's doing is she wants us to sympathize with her because she wants us to think she is powerless meaning I am obliging I am easy to get along with everybody else exercises control and I finally have snapped however if you read further along in the story you realize, as postmistress, she is the gatekeeper to the outside world. There's mm-hmm. no mention of telephones. Mm-hmm. And so what she's talking about is, well, my family don't want to make amends with me, and they don't pick up their mail, So they and she literally says at one point, and maybe I'll find it later, um, they have no way to talk to the outside world because they're being contrary. Oh, my God! And the people in town who sided with Papa, Daddy, and Mama, uh, the ones that won't come by stamps, they're also isolating themselves. And you realize sister is is being petulant functionally because she is exercising control over people whom she wants us to believe have the power to control her and she is rebelling against that mm-hmm. and so it's this dynamic of who has the upper hand because she she wants us to, she wants to appeal to our human nature which is to side with an underdog mm-hmm. but when you read through you're like is she is sister? the underdog or is she the spoiled one is she the one who is is throwing a tantrum
0: but it's something that's like as petty as a tantrum that is turning into something that is actually impacting a large part of the The small town population Yeah. yeah so it becomes like an actually important story Where it's like, oh, this is about her emotions and her first person point of view, but many people are affected at this point. Which
1: harkens back to the idea of this being a prominent family. Mm -hmm. Because, Okay, you know that they must be the first family in this community because their dysfunction has disrupted everything, which kind of lends to the idea that there's an enmeshment in the community that stems from the idea of this particular family is is like bountiful, meaning maybe they employ several people. Maybe they have they've invested. Maybe people come to them for advice Mm -hmm. or maybe they're patrons of something. Because this family's little squabble has now disrupted everything. (laughs) Yes.
0: Which is also kind of hilarious. Yeah. Wow. This is this was a great pick. I am definitely gonna go in and finish this story. I'm gonna give you this printout. Yes, thank you. It's gonna help me edit too.
1: But yeah, good choice. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. And I I do want to say, Udara Welty's style of writing is, when you're reading it out loud, when you're reading it in your mind, like I tripped up several times. It is very specific linguistically. It is very specific colloquially. She is utilizing speech patterns that she would have been familiar with. Not Mm -hmm. just the rapid fire, but like... Just the English. I mean, my gosh, there are several times where I just finally was like, I just like gave up and just like read it. and It yeah. didn't make any sense to me. Yeah. And um, I think it's old Southern and I think it's probably specific to the Delta, which... Yeah. And you can yet. you
0: can imagine her being nostalgic as she's writing this. Exactly. Like inspired by her own nostalgia yes. and being like, I'm going to put that into the story. And I think that you being from, you know, we're both from Louisiana, but you're from like a little farther north, more country than like me and like the deep south, deep, deep south in New Orleans. Right. Like you're more familiar with this language. I feel no. like it, you, it was easier for you to read and maybe relate to in a few ways. Sure.
1: She said a couple of things in here. I don't know if they're southernisms or colorisms, like but there are a couple of things I'm like, oh, you know, like, uh, I wouldn't have you shave your beard off than the man in the moon, like uh-huh. that my mama says, the man in <laughs> the moon, constantly. Things like that. Yeah. Um, papa Daddy, I mean, like, um, that'd be like you and me saying papa. I think.
0: Papa Daddy is hilarious to me. Um, just in general. Mm-hmm. But I also just wanted to say, like, you did such a good job reading this. Like, there, I really there's hope. There's a future for you in, like, reading novels for money.
1: Narrator, I mean, narrators. <laughs> I am the narrator. Uh, listeners, I really hope that you, <laughs> you, you can reject. get through that. Because let me tell you, I felt like a goose. You would know, you did such a great job. I guess the point is, I think Eudora Welty is a particularly good author for some of our listeners to explore. Mm-hmm. You can buy her stuff easily. You don't have to go to a specialty website or store or get a translation. Her stuff's easily accessible, and I think that anybody who is an amateur writer or somebody who's looking to hone their craft, she's a good one to read because the pace at which she writes and the tone that we've discussed and the quality of her care of characters is worth studying. Things can be funny, but as a writer, you owe a certain level of respect to your characters. Mm -hmm. Meaning, there's a difference between setting the tone and making fun of sister. She is not making fun of sister. She is letting sister be sister, and we find it silly. Mm -hmm. And that is important, because I feel Eudora Welty is taking a snapshot of this. She's not saying, look at the stupid fool. No, it's, from it's Little full town.
0: character development. Yes. It, it's, it's not hiding any yes. aspect of your character. And the fact that we find it hilarious yes. is hilarious to us. But other readers might be like, oh my gosh, I relate to this character. Everyone else is evil. She's right. And that's
1: the great thing about first person. I mean, or any tense, but really first person. The reader has the ability to interpret what's happening. When you said A while ago with your writing that you are keen to 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 write a reliable first-person narrator Mm -hmm. and the things I've read like that's my take on it Mm -hmm. Um, it's great because first person lays so much to interpretation Mm -hmm. the reader has a lot of power because you the writer you're like oh I know she's telling the truth because I'm crafting the narrative Mm -hmm. but the reader may read it and they may pick up on something that you as the writer subconsciously did not realize no, no, no. and it and it, it's almost like the unfolding of origami. Yeah. And so, um, that's another great like point too. Yeah. You know, the first person really allows gives the reader some power.
0: And I wanna say, like, the first person narrator that I like like to depict mm-hmm. in general, I'm not saying that they are a perfect person and that they should be trusted. I'm just saying I wanna write likable enough narrators that my yes. readers are like you maybe aren't the, the best person but right. I'm still on your side yes like you might have interpreted that situation wrong right. uh, but you, you're still good and maybe one day I will write a villain and have. I consider I consider sister a villain I can and see I, sister being a villain yeah here. but I mean she's taking the, the community hostage
1: it, <laughs> makes you too, it makes you really want to read the story from Stella Rondo's perspective
0: right because Stella Rondo has, has some explaining to do, Something. You know? And that's that's fun to not get any, any like, insight into what is going on in her life. And to wonder, like, what is really up with Stella Rondo? I'll never know because I only have this unreliable narrator. Like, that's that's so fun to me.
1: I'll tell you what. This is this was a cute little story. I'm glad I chose it. And I'm glad that we chose Nostalgia. And, of course, as always, I'm looking forward to your pick. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: Very different. Mm-hmm very different. Um, and also I, I i do I like that you picked this story as well. This is the Writer Who Reads podcast though, and like we also do like underrepresented authors. We and she is a woman, so like good pick, excellent pick. But at the same time I do want to personally go and like research more into her photography because you mentioned that she like photographed black people I'm guessing in the South. Mm-hmm. And in a respectful way that really told their story, which I think is very important in, in the time period especially because a lot of black people didn't have a voice in that mm-hmm. time. And, you know, I'm glad that she gave them a voice in a way. But also in the story, I noticed she was like, Mama, let the Negroes go. Exactly. So I was just like, okay, we're aware of black people's existence in the South. Um, what does it mean? And, of course, back then Negro exactly wasn't an it. offensive term at all. So... Yeah, I want to learn more about Eudora T and, you know, why she won the Pulitzer Prize and other things. So
1: no, I, I totally agree. I think she's worth looking at. Mm-hmm. I think she, uh, above anything else, represents a type of person from her time, meaning... I think it is so interesting that she was a photographer. Mm-hmm. And she was from Jackson, Mississippi and in the 1930s. And a writer. And, and she
0: was from Mississippi. And she lived in Wisconsin. She sounds like she traveled a lot. Like Went To she, Columbia school. Yes. School. She, she did a lot. And that's, she had a lot of, I want to say freedom, but I'm like, I'm not thinking of the right word. But she she moved around a lot for a woman at that time. time. Yeah, and like
1: I said, specifically a lady in the South, I think Uh. that there was a a different expectation. Well,
0: even now, I mean, I know both of us know women in the South who have just Mm -hmm. been like, I was born here, I married Mm. my high school sweetheart, and then I never left. Sure. And it's like, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, but like that's in 2020 you know yeah
1: in the in well into the 21st century yeah so and i mentioned this to you but i didn't say it a while ago she died in the house in in, in the house that was built in 1925 yeah that was her house. Mm-hmm. Her, she inherited it from her parents and that's where she died and um at, and i know that first it was made a mississippi landmark and now it's a on the national historical register wow. so it's one of those really cool things and one thing we talked about is we want to Anytime there's something physical that people can go visit, mm-hmm. uh, we want to mention that so that if you're reading, if you're listening to this podcast, or you're reading a Udora Welty book or Willa Cather book or is it book, you know, make a make a road trip of it. If yeah. you're working remotely, get in your car, go to Jackson. Like I'm going to Jackson. That's is an that old a tiny, song? That's an old Jim um, Carter song. Oh, song. Wow. like
0: I've heard a lot of good things about Jackson. I've passed through. And I've heard that there's really great food out there.
1: Pig ear sandwiches. They're, they're famous for that. Pig
0: ear sandwiches? I don't
1: don't scoff, Kate. Is it a
0: pickled pig ear?
1: They pressure cook them. Honey, no. So it's not no. pickled, it's pressure cooked. No. But no, I, pig ear sandwiches and... um I'm trying to think of uh other things. I mean, the food... It's Mississippi, so the food's good. It's soul food. Yeah, yeah. Um, of course. And tomorrow, just listeners in case you missed it earlier today is the wednesday before thanksgiving tomorrow is thanksgiving and so miss kate is going to be having a feast here at my little cottage and
0: prepared 1000 percent by trapper i've been washing dishes that's all i did. And
1: let me tell you something you have saved the day you are my heroine you have saved the day so um this was a great fun reintroduction i'm thinking that when we do yours it's going to be just like bombastic like we're just going to be tearing through like full speed.
0: I mean, I think we can both say that we were both nervous about coming back after three freaking years yeah. of like not recording a podcast. And before y'all, we were just like sitting here like what are like literary analysis terms? <laughs> like symbolism, metaphor, point of view, point like of we view. we were really trying to like remember because it like like you said with writing, literary analysis in general is mm-hmm. a muscle that you have to flex. And I am so out of practice, so I I was scared, but I think we did well.
1: One of the things that we appreciated about the podcast initially, the first season, Mm -hmm. and one of the reasons that we wanted to resurrect it was we don't get to have these fun little conversations about Mm -hmm. like, you know intellectual little things I mean I'm not gonna say you and I are Einstein or anything no I remember in the first season we were
0: like we're not professors we don't know what we're we're talking about and like it's so true but it's so nice to have our like silly little place on the internet where we can just try and talk about it and then like I don't I personally just don't do research like I get caught up in life I get Mm -hmm. caught up in my job I like I don't look into authors I don't read books that aren't like super popular at the moment so it's nice to like have to do this research about authors we've never heard of before.
1: Yes, and maybe get somebody else to look at them. Yeah. Um, You know, I want to ask you this, because we didn't talk about it, but are you reading anything at present, or have you read anything recently that you'd like to just name out loud? Ooh,
0: what am I reading?
1: I mean, it's on the Writer Who
0: Reads blog or, like, the Instagram. Shout out, shout out. So technically I'm reading The Invisible Man by H.G. Wells, but that was only because i was trying to like i'm i'm i don't know why i'm trying to justify what i'm reading but it's just like it seems like such like a common book to read but i really i have this idea for this horror story but i realized i was like there was one book that i read in the past called like house or the house that was okay. a horror book but other than that i've never read horror so i was like before i try and sit yeah. down and write something that's scary i'm going to read this book and i read about like two pages of it and then I was just kind of like living alone for the first time in a long time. This is horrific, yeah. And, and i okay. currently, the past couple months, I've been living in the French Quarter, so I'm in this like really old house, and I'm just like, I cannot bring myself to read anything scary because I'm already terrified enough. Yeah. So, yeah. You're but,
1: sensitive to that sort of thing. Exactly.
0: <sighs> what are you reading right now?
1: I am 75 pages into Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee by Dee Brown, oh. which is a nonfiction
0: interesting about the American Indian nonfiction. yeah
1: it's really great and it that it's like H.G. Wells I think it's a relatively well-known book and it was consumed en masse in the 1970s really when it was first published and it basically uh, you know it's one of the first things that reframed the narrative of the taking of the West mm-hmm. um, and pushed back against the idea of you know the John Wayne movie and said you know we stole land. Yeah, that, that
0: expansion f- was like romanticized for the mm-hmm. longest time.
1: And I think that was, from what I understand from the preface of the book, it was like the first thing ever that That's said really like, "Oh,
0: this was wrong." Yeah. yeah.
1: So anyway, um, I'm I'm reading it because uh, it's one of those moments where you're in the bookstore and you recognize a title, but you've never read the book. Uh-huh. And it was on sale, and I said, I'm going to buy this. And I'm reading it, and I love it. Anybody who may be interested in that, know. It is nonfiction, and it's written in very like plain prose. I'll just say, does it put you to sleep? No, it, it it it's it's easy to consume, no matter like if you're an academic or you're just somebody and. Um... I think that it's it's great American history, which you and I both love history. Period. Yeah, yeah. And um, this is really good. It's well researched. So anyway, that's what I'm reading.
0: That's fun, and I love. I don't read a lot of nonfiction, but I just love nonfiction in general because when I do read it, it really helps inform your writing. I think I agree. a lot of great writers love history, especially you, because you write great period stuff. <laughs> so it's just like it the more you consume the, the the richer your writing is and I remember being so happy to like be in school because like mm-hmm. I, I was a creative writing major yeah, you were creative writing and literature and it was like you were taking all these electives and like all of the stories that I wrote for our classes I was like okay I'm taking Greek civilization oh. so the elements <laughs> yeah. of that is going to be in my writing like once I was taking like jazz history and elements of that was in my writing yeah. so it's it's good. I'm glad that you're reading yeah. nonfiction. You're non- inspiring
1: me right now. Nonfiction is important for anybody who writes because even if it's not germane to what you're actually writing creatively, it, it kind of, again, exercises the ability to, ability to do research mm-hmm. beyond just like getting online.
0: Yeah, exactly. You go
1: out there and you read something. Which we do all day.
0: Yeah. Just be online. But anyway, I think that this episode is super long. I'm 300 glad. 300
1: hours. Of Lovely.
0: Can't wait to edit it. Thank you,
1: Eudora Welti, for Thank your you. time. Thank you
0: this was wonderful um I'm glad to be back how do you feel
1: I'm glad to be back I can't wait to see how we make this work moving forward you know yeah. you being in New York me still being in Louisiana and we're gonna make it work make
0: we're it work. not scared to travel the um, internet does exist
1: yeah it'll be a great excuse to meet places in the middle like you said. Well,
0: yeah we should yeah we we had to s- switch up our intro because it said that we were in New Orleans and that
1: is not no, gonna be the case Well, and now that, I mean, you took the train here to Mississippi, so you and I may just like take Amtrak and meet Honey, Amtrak
0: is the most romantic experience in the world. I feel like I've said romantic 30 million times, I've said absurd a million times, but that's what I I like.
1: And that was a plug for Amtrak. Amtrak, America's (laughs) railways. Save our railways. (laughs) Save our railways. Scenic views by Amtrak. (laughs) Wonderful. Yes, enjoy Amtrak's beautiful experience.
0: Amtrak, send us money. We just plugged you.
1: The city of New Orleans is the train you took to, to Mississippi. <laughs> anyway.
0: Alright, yeah. Thanks again to Kai with the short hair. Yes. Uh, this episode's dedicated to you. And the next episode is going to be dedicated to a follower on Instagram. So if you're listening, we're going to shout you out next week. Um, this is just a reminder to follow us on Instagram at writer who Reads, and there is a Twitter twwr and that's all we have right now. Give us a five star review. Um, or a one
1: star review if you thought it was worth one star I'm not
0: accepting those anymore <laughs> I want five star reviews I want happy be honest thoughts. be honest you can give us you a three know? and up um, but thanks for listening welcome back to you welcome back to us how did we use to end the podcast how do we end it I'm going to show you right now okay so this has been the 18th episode of the Writer Who Reads podcast I'm your host Kate Austin I'm
1: Trapper Kinchin
0: and thanks for joining us as we try to read a little more
1: write a little better And explore the human condition together. (laughs) I love you.
0: I love
1: you too. R.I.P. Heather. (laughs)